governments, of course, have the accountability and responsibility to deliver on the biodiversity framework. But there is increasing focus and recognition that the private sector plays a really important role in helping to deliver the biodiversity framework. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Johnston. Mark is the strategy lead for nature-based solutions in the environmental sustainability team at BP. At BP, Mark provides technical advice and leadership on issues related to biodiversity, ecosystem services, nature-based solutions, including the relationships with international environmental NGOs and representation of businesses at international events. Mark is the current chair of the IPICA BES Working Group, and as a member of the newly formed Informal Working Group of the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, or TNFD. He's also a member of the IPBES Expert Panel on Business and Biodiversity. Mark completed a degree in zoology and a PhD at Imperial College, and he has an MBA from Open University. Hi, Mark. Thanks for speaking with me today. Great. No, pleasure. Thank you so much for the invite. It's great to be here. Thank you, Michael. So, Mark, let's start off by learning a little bit more about yourself and your work. Can you tell me about your journey? How did you come to work on biodiversity and eventually biodiversity with BP? <laughs> great. Well, thanks. That's a great question. I won't go back too far anyway. My interest in nature conservation started you know, when I was knee-high to a grasshopper. When I was about 10, 12, I used to go out and do bird surveys and plant surveys. So I was probably a bit of a geek, to be honest, at that time. And I'd just been passionate about the natural world and, and conservation. And I sort of followed, then went on and followed a typical academic sort of career. I did a, you know, a degree in, in zoology, and then I went on to do a PhD in plant population ecology, then did postdoctorate research, went into lecturing for about 10 years or so. Um, and then I just felt I, w I wanted to make a change and, and swap over to the, the, the private sector. So I went into consultancy for a few years. Um, and actually before that, I was, I was actually involved in a range of different research activities on in, based in Guyana, South America, um, or a range, range of different research activities, but went over to consultancy and then joined BP. And my, my sort of drive, I suppose, has always been about you know, making change and, and just being passionate about nature conservation wanting to embrace and get others involved in, in nature conservation. And that's what I've been sort of following my passion um, since. So what do you do with BP exactly? What, what is your role and, and how do you advise the company? Yeah, certainly. So I've been in BP just over nine years. I'm now starting a new role, but basically I'm a strategy lead for biodiversity and nature-based solutions in our new uh, environmental sustainability team. BP has been going through a lot of changes recently in terms of now having, we're going through something called reInvent. We're reorganizing the organization to get behind sort of a new business strategy, which I can talk through a bit more later on. But I'll provide technical advice across the group um, on biodiversity and ecology issues. That's right from the project level, how to manage in biodiversity through to sort of more corporate position and strategic issues around biodiversity. 
And until recently, you were the chair of the Cross-Sector Biodiversity Initiative, or CSBI. And that's actually how we met, because, of course, BMO is a, a member of CSBI now, and it's taken up that chairmanship role. But can you, you're, you're one of the, the, the original you know, leaders of that and have been so influential in that organization. Can you tell our audience what is CSBI and, and what types of activities and thought leadership did you work on as chair? Sure, thank you very much. And it was great to have BMO involved in, in the CSBI, so fantastic for taking that role. So yeah, I mean, CSBI is quite unique and it's a really exciting initiative because it brings together three associations. It brings together IPICA, Oil and Gas Association for Environment and Social Issues and Oil and Gas. We've got ICMM for Minerals and Metals in terms of that association, and then the Equator Principles Association. And so it's quite unique, and it brings together those three different aspects. And actually, the particular value in the CSBI is bringing in, in that financial sector because you look at things slightly differently from a different perspective and bring challenges to the different sectors and I think that's a real sort of value because you provide that thinking different perspective and that's how you're coming the CSBR cross-sector biodiversity initiative is really sort of being able to hopefully sort of make change and, and really think about how we're addressing the biodiversity issues so it came about about eight years ago now and it's really off the back of the IFC performance standard six when that was relatively new, from business, from the different groups coming together thinking, well, how do we actually implement? How do we make the IFC Performance Standard 6 practical? And how do we provide support on the implementation of the PS6 um, and the requirements there? So what we agreed, then we set out the number of different standards and something which was involved in is producing simple guidance about how to apply PS6, particularly around biodiversity baselines, about around the mitigation hierarchy and about this project timeline. And we produce a whole range of different practical guidance through CSBI to support the members. Yeah, so maybe I guess just to start and set a baseline, biodiversity is is becoming a topic within the context of sustainability alongside climate change is probably being the, the biggest imperative that we have yep. around corporate sustainability and from a policy perspective. What is biodiversity? How should we think about that? And and how does it relate, in your view, to corporate sustainability, particularly? Yeah, great. Now, thank you for that. And I think and it's great to have this focus now on biodiversity. And we're seeing a huge number of initiatives going on in this space at the moment. But I think, you know, first of all, saving type, what is biodiversity? You know, its broadest sense, it is, of course, it's the diversity of life. You know, it's, it's everything natural, the natural world, another way of looking at it. It's everything from ecosystems to species to genetic diversity. So that's sort of its broadest definition and approach. And why it's important? Well, I think, you know, there's a real sort of pivotal report that came out a couple of years ago by from ITBES, which was really uh, clearly articulated the facts behind biodiversity and the loss of biodiversity. You know, there's a lot of these facts going around, but, you know, 75%, 65%, 75% terrestrial environment, 66% of the marine environment is um, severely altered by industrial and human activity. One million species are at risk of extinction. Current rate of extinction is around 100 times greater than natural background rate. So, you know, laid out the facts that biodiversity is in decline and we have to do something about it. And then earlier this year, we had the Dasgupta review, which was obviously looking at the economics of biodiversity and the biodiversity loss. And that really clearly articulated that the continued erosion of natural capital 
and the failure to put a value on, on nature. And actually, we have to really rethink the way we value nature in order to, to halt that decline in biodiversity. So that's the background. In terms of the, sort of the corporate perspective, I think we recognize you know, the world is on an unsustainable path. And therefore, it makes long-term business sense for the private sector to operate more sustainably. You know, we have to change. We can't carry on. It's not business as usual anymore. We have to make these changes. And there's two really sort of quite important aspects. First of all, you know, the private sector can help in enhancing and storing biodiversity as well as reducing its impact and managing the risks. And then it's the dependencies on biodiversity. The corporates, private sector, etc., very much depend on biodiversity for economic growth and sustainability. So that dual aspect of dependencies and impacts is really critical to sort of the biodiversity components. And therefore, we need to really get that balance better. And Mark, you mentioned natural capital and this idea of valuing nature. Can you just develop that idea more. What do you mean by natural capital? Yeah, sure. That's absolutely a good point. And then there's a lot of there's a lot of jargon in this space, which is all to get your head around. So obviously, natural capital, first of all, is much wider than just biodiversity. It's the world stocks of natural assets, including uh, geography, geology, soil, air, water, not just biodiversity itself. So it's much wider than biodiversity. And I see it, you know, biodiversity helps connect all these different aspects of, of natural assets, soil, water, air, etc. So it is a much broader concept. And is that related to this idea of ecosystem services, which I know plays a prominent role in IFC Performance Standard 6 and how we think about managing all of the natural systems that we rely on, maybe not advertently, but we are relying on them, you know, for even business activity. How do you think of that idea of ecosystem services? So another sort of, well, sort of buzzword at the moment in ecosystem services. So ecosystem services, briefly, is you know, the goods and services we, as people or society, get from natural capital. So if you like, you've got the natural capital or the natural assets, you've got people and, and how we use resources, and ecosystem services are the flows from natural capital to the people capital, if you like, or the human capital. So it's how we use biodiversity. And that can things like typically include provisioning services like timber, food, fisheries, all those sort of the, the natural, our use of natural resources. But it can also include things like cultural services as well, the outdoors, the cultural significant spiritual value. And I think what's been really quite poignant over the last 12 months or so as part of the pandemic is you know, our connectivity with nature. And that actually the, the, the cultural importance of, of, of nature or biodiversity has really come home recently because we really value that open space during these very difficult times. So you know, that's just an element of the sort of ecosystem services. And you mentioned some of the focus of CSBI has been on the interpretation and application of IFC Performance Standard 6. So just as background mm -hmm. for the audience, the IFC Performance Standards set out an international benchmark for sustainability management and is really a bench line for good environmental and social risk management. And it cuts across many different industries. There's eight different performance standards. Performance standard six is focused on biodiversity. And one of the areas of collaboration between CSBI, the mining sector, energy sector, and finance sector was to really in interpret and develop best practices in applying that standard. So I've given a bit of a background, but you know, what from your perspective as a, as a real deep expert on this topic, what is IFC Performance Standard 6 all about and what is, what is the role that it plays in terms of management of biodiversity in the corporate world? 
great. I think that's a great question and a really important one because yeah, you know, the IFC Performance Standard Six, when it came out, really did set a very clear sort of new international standards for biodiversity. It set the expectations on how you manage biodiversity on a project or sort of or site level. So it really was a game changer when it came out. So it was a real sort of masterpiece behind and how it, how it, what it achieved. And now the key component behind it is about also requirements for projects to achieve a no net loss in biodiversity or a net gain, depending on the project location and depending on about the, the, the nature of the project activities. So it really introduced those key terms, which we are now seeing as really becoming embedded in, in, a, in, in, in sort of the language around biodiversity. And so what do you mean by no net loss of biodiversity? How would you evaluate that and what is the objective behind it? So no net loss, I mean, it's defined as a point of which project-related impacts on biodiversity are balanced by appropriate mitigation measures. So more simplistically-wise, you know, a project has a negative impact on biodiversity, and therefore what you have to do is then basically do positive things, um, you know, things which restore biodiversity or produce a gains. And no net loss is then basically getting the balance between the negatives and the positives. So there's basically no change overall net um, in the actual baseline. Of course, that's not easy because obviously biodiversity is complicated. It's very site-specific in terms of the nature of the project or the nature of the activities going on. And measuring your impacts is not always very easy as well. So it's not an easy thing to do, and it has its technical challenges. And also, it has, I think, it's important to recognise the, the social and local community aspects of, of, of achieving their net loss as well. And this is with the other aspect of, of, of the RC Performance Standard 6, the way it's integrated and looking at ecosystem services in there as well to make sure when you are doing things like biodiversity no net loss, you do consider the ecosystem services and the local people use biodiversity, which is a, it's actually a really important piece. And a related concept in the performance standards and environmental and social risk management is an idea of a mitigation hierarchy. So it's best if you can avoid any impact, that's the top of the hierarchy. If you can minimize the impact that you have, that's the, the next best solution. And then there's an idea of offsetting, which is not ideal, but you know, if it's the only resort, then it's better than nothing. But I think in biodiversity, the mitigation hierarchy is even more complex than that. Are you able to kind of explain <laughs> how do you think about this mitigation hierarchy idea in the context of biodiversity? Absolutely. So the mitigation hierarchy is, uh, you know, it's a framework for managing risks and the potential impacts. And there's actually really quite core to how you manage your impacts on biodiversity, as you've highlighted. The emphasis must be and should always be on avoidance and minimizing first and then restore on offset your impacts if necessary. Obviously, the focus, if you can avoid and minimize impacts in the first place, fantastic. Um, but then really only move to restoring or offsets if need to, if need to, if you can't avoid and minimize the actual impacts. So it's a really important aspect to it. And, and CSBI has been really fundamental in providing some practical guidance on how, how to do that. There are challenges to it, particularly as you move up the mitigation hierarchy. So typically doing biodiversity uh, restoration or offsets can be very challenging because there's all sorts of unknowns and uncertainties. So as you move down the mitigation hierarchy, it becomes increasingly difficult to implement and less certainty about being able to deliver your final target or outcome, whether it's a net gain or no net loss in biodiversity. So hence, again, the emphasis is on avoidance and on minimization because you're know, finding land for doing offsetting, for example, can be quite challenging. Who owns that land? Who manages it in the long term? And, of course, achieving a no net loss in biodiversity may take you 5, 10, 15, 30 years, depending on the nature of the impact. And there's all sorts of complications associated with it. 
because obviously you know when you look at a project or site level you're not doing those restoration and on offsets in isolation there's other projects there's other priorities there's local communities so doing it in that wider landscape is, is one of the key challenges as well are there any examples that you'd be able to share with us about you know how have you thought about these kinds of challenges in the context of you know a project or operations in your work I can try, I guess, aspects of it. I think certainly in terms of specific ones we, we've looked at ourselves. So, for example, for typical oil and gas project activity is seismic in terms of seismic surveys, doing out to do geophysical surveys, particularly in the marine environment for oil and gas. And the emphasis there is you're obviously trying to the key issues there is also in terms of marine mammals and potential impacts on marine mammals from from underwater sound, and therefore you basically design your schedule, your seismic plan around the seasonal constraints. So basically doing seismic activities when marine mammals are not there or when they're not carving in that location. So it's that first stage of avoidance mechanism. So we've done that several times in our operations where we've basically timed the seismic activities specifically when the whale populations or marine mammal populations are not in that location. And critical to that, of course, is understanding the baseline. Because you need to know exactly when the marine mammals are going to be there or not going to be there. So the other key aspect of the mitigation hierarchy is really understanding your biodiversity baseline so you can then apply different parts of the mitigation hierarchy. And on that, just as a follow-up, what role does data play in all of this? Like you're talking about baselines. I've been recently speaking with GBIF and you know other types of uh, databases, but can you just speak a little bit to how you think about acquiring that type of baseline data? And are there you know these kinds of international repositories? Is that important for your work, or do you do these studies on your own? So incredibly important. So the data itself drives the whole management of your impacts because you know, it is so critically important. But it has to be at scale appropriate to the nature of the particular projects you're doing. Obviously, if you're going to be doing large projects in potentially sensitive areas, you need very detailed data in order to inform you know, the nature of activities where other sites where you may be working in a brownfall site or also sort of less sensitive area, there may already be a lot of existing historical data. So it, does, it very much depends on the nature of the, of the project. But these sort of project like GBEF and other platforms are increasingly important as we better understand some of the sensitivities and issues and the nature of the impacts. So we have that data available to actually understand well what is actually there, what isn't there, etc. And the challenges of biodiversity are highlighted. It, it changes. You know, you have to consider the whole seasonal effects from one month to the next because biodiversity is continuously changing. And typically for redfish short projects, you don't necessarily always have time to do detailed baselines. You can't do baselines for two or three years before you implement the project. You have a short time window to collect the data. Therefore, getting access to historical data and sharing data between different operators or different groups is, is actually really important and really valuable. And I think that's progressing really nicely and see, nice to see some of the initiatives there about the importance of, of data sharing. And I think that's a real area which we need to be doing more of across the different sectors. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, I, as I understand, relatively new that the private sector is now sharing information of, of the baselines they've adopted. And the Equator Principles, as you mentioned, the cross-sector biodiversity initiative also includes the Equator Principles Association, which is a group of banks that are implementing environmental and social risk management approaches, in, including BMO. When we now collect this data in the context of a project finance, there's a requirement in the Equator Principles Agreement framework 
to share that information with this international data collective GBIF. So that it's a, it's a, it's a good opportunity for, for more historical data and data sharing. Maybe with that, let's pivot squarely to your work with BP and the energy sector more, more broadly. What is the goal of BP around biodiversity and biodiversity management, and how do you think of it in that context? Yeah, certainly. So before talking especially about BP, I think, first of all, it's important to recognize and we're seeing the focus on biodiversity at the moment, which is fantastic, you know, that we understand that transformative change is needed and businesses like BP have a significant part to play in managing our impacts on biodiversity and, of course, enhancing or restoring biodiversity as well. So for, for large corporates like ourselves, for BP, biodiversity is, is much more than just an add-on. It's very much embedded into how we do things. And you may have seen we, we recently launched our sustainability aims and, and framework. And part of that is about caring for our planet, recognizing again, you know, we're on an unsustainable path. We have to do something about it. Biodiversity has been embedded into our thinking and our processes for a good 14, 15, 16 odd years or so. But we recognize now as highlighted by IBES and the other reports come up, we have, we, have to, you know, we have to up our game a bit. We have to do a bit more than we are doing at the moment. So I recognize we don't, of course, have all the answers yet, but we do realize we have to make these, these changes. So I think that you know, the goal for business as a whole, it should be about applying the mitigation hierarchy you know, across different activities, whether it's a project level or the supply level. And then in BP, we've made an aim to enhance biodiversity and enhancing biodiversity and making a positive impact through actions to restore, maintain and enhance biodiversity where we work, because we recognize that the intrinsic link and the importance of nature. And BP launched a new biodiversity position last year, as I understand it. Can you take me through what that position is? Yeah, certainly. So last June, our CEO, Bernard Looney, uh, launched our new biodiversity position, which was very exciting. And the position itself, it basically there's two main parts of the position one around protected areas and one about biodiversity. So the first one on protected areas is a commitment not to undertake any new oil and gas exploration or production activities inside UNESCO World Heritage Sites, that's cultural and natural world heritage sites, and also no go into IUCN strict nature reserves and wilderness areas, that's ICN 1A and 1B. So we made that commitment. It's a commitment it's set in stone. And actually, we're the only extractive company, to, I think, to make that no-go commitment for the strict nature reserves and wilderness areas. So if you link it back, you know, it's because we recognize that some of these highly sensitive areas need protection. And if you like, it's part of the, it's that first step of the mitigation hierarchy we've set in stone. These are the areas we won't go into. It's the avoidance steps in a mitigation hierarchy, if you like. So that's the first part. The second part is around biodiversity itself, and we have set out three objectives under that position. First one is we aim to achieve a net positive impact on biodiversity in our new projects. That's from 2022. It's for new BP-operated projects whose planned activities have a potential for a significant direct impact on biodiversity, and those projects will be required to develop net positive impact action plans. Our target at a group level is then for to deliver 90% of those actions within five years of the project approval of the project startup. So we've set a sort of a bound of when those targets need to be, when those actions need to be met. That requirement will apply to all projects across our portfolio. That's not just oil and gas, it's renewables and anything and everything else in between, and whether or not it's in a sensitive area or not. 
we feel it doesn't really matter whether you're in a critical habitat or not, you still should be aiming to achieve a net positive impact on biodiversity. And in that respect, it goes a little bit beyond the IRC performance standards in terms of that, that, sort, of, of that sort of technical level. So that's the first one on, on NPI. We have two others. One is about enhancing biodiversity around the major operating sites. These are the production hubs, if you like. And we'll be starting off by introducing enhancement plans for those major operating sites from straight away over the next couple of years and then expanding that to all of our major operating sites from 2025, I think it is. And then the final piece is about supporting biodiversity restoration and sustainable use of natural resources in countries where we operate. So this is supporting local conservation efforts, conservation projects, working with local partners, not related to our project, not related to operations, but just helping the world get there in terms of that transformative change. So that's just a, a quick summary. There's also more details on our website, etc. So how does this biodiversity plan fit into your broader sustainability strategy? Yeah, so that's no, actually really important. So last year, we announced a new purpose to reimagine energy for people on our planet. And more recently, we've actually set out more details behind that. You know, our ambition to become a net zero company by 2050 or, or sooner and help the world get there, uh, get to net zero. We launched our new strategy to reshape our business, and we've been going through that process of change recently. And that new strategy is underpinned by a new sustainability frame, focusing on three key areas. Getting to net zero, people improving people's lives, and caring for the planet. And literally just last week, we launched... 10 new aims, five around people, improving people's lives, five around the caring for the planet, and one of those is biodiversity. Because there's a recognition that you know, we have to take a holistic approach. You can't just look in biodiversity on its own. You have to consider not just the social aspect, but the other aspects of the environment. So we've set out plans to aim to achieve a net, to, be net, to be water positive and the need to conserve water catchment areas, managing impacts through a supply chain and greater focus on circular economy, plastics, etc., and nature-based solutions. So all those other areas, of course, also have benefits basically directly or indirectly to biodiversity as well. So I think it's really important. You know, it's not just about biodiversity. Yes, biodiversity is important, but it has to be considered as, as a holistic. And that's the approach we've, we've, we've recently put forward. And there's a real emphasis on collective action and there's phrases like mainstreaming biodiversity, You know, I guess raising awareness. What does that mean to your strategy? How do you see the role of mobilizing and, and convening companies or people on this topic? Yeah, I actually think this is, this is really important. And, and it's very similar in terms of our climate ambitions as well, that, you know, collective action is needed. You know, individual companies and governments themselves can't do it alone. We all have to work together in order to make the transformative change which we keep talking about. So no one group can do this on their own. So that collective action is, is really important. We do em emphasize the importance of, of influencing. So we will be talking and do talk to our partners, our business partners, but also some associations and other institutions we, we have links into. And, and, yeah, um, and trying to, um, also, first of all, just talking about what we're doing within BP and our new position, but also trying to influence them and say, you know, this is our approach. We're very happy to help you along, along the same journey because we think you know, that's really important. And then you also mentioned mainstreaming, which is a little bit of one of the buzzwords which is going around at the moment. And actually, we've got this in our position as well about the importance of mainstreaming. And I think this is, and this is actually one of the really quite exciting areas. So this, for me, is about integrating biodiversity into decision-making. Beyond that of just managing your impacts and risks on projects, but actually getting 
you know, the value of biodiversity into the decision-making processes within the companies, embedding it into things like the risk management processes within the company, within your capital allocation. So it's actually embedded into um, the decision-making, not just about managing impacts and risks. And I think actually this is why it's really quite exciting to see, encouraging to see the finance sector taking increasing active interest in how corporates like ourselves manage those biodiversity risks because it is about the importance of that mainstreaming and what we do. And so on that mainstreaming point, just as a follow-up question, one mm. of the uh, podcast episodes we did was with the Value Balancing Alliance. And, you know, I've been learning a lot about the different accounting methodologies that are being used to put value on natural capital. Is that part of the strategy at all? Or how do you bring this topic into the decision-making framework from a business strategy perspective? That's a great question and a really important one. And it's for biodiversity anyway, it is really difficult. You know, how do you put a value on biodiversity? People have been, you know, economists and others have been trying to do this for years and realize you can't do it. And then there's a whole premise behind the desk up to review as well. I don't have the answer to that, unfortunately. We have been looking at how we can do that. And I think you can you can measure it from a risk perspective in terms of the you know, the, the, the risk of, of biodiversity loss and how that may impact the company and vice versa. So I think there's opportunities there, but, but actually putting an actual figure or value on biodiversity to then incorporate into your accounts is something which, um, if we can do it, <laughs> that'd be fantastic. I think it's a good way of doing it. But I think biodiversity is so difficult. How do you actually put a value on it? Because um, you can... Technically, put try and try and put a, a price or a value on carbon or certain uh, certain commodities, but biodiversity is so much more complicated. It's very, much, very difficult to do. Twenty twenty one is going to be a very landmark year for the topic of biodiversity and for climate change. Of course, the COP twenty six will be happening in Glasgow this November, and there's also around that time going to be another COP process called COP15. We don't know exactly when it'll happen because of COVID, but it's in the works and it's going to be focused on the Convention on Biodiversity. So this framework is is really critical, I think, in terms of setting out the global policy objectives around biodiversity. So as an expert in this field, can you take us through your thoughts on what the Convention on Biodiversity is, what the upcoming COP15 process will mean? You know, what's the goal of all of that work? Sure. No, great. Thank you. As you highlighted, you know, 2021 is another big year for biodiversity and in terms of the activities going on. Um, and country, we do actually now have a date. I think it's launched recently. You know, the 9th, 11th of October is the plan for the COP, which, which is great to see. A bit of background. So the Convention on Biological Diversity is a multilateral treaty. Um, it was agreed in 1992, ratified by 196 countries. And it has three main goals. One is about the conservation of biological diversity sustainable use of its components and the fair and equitable sharing of benefits from the genetic resources. So there's three different parts to it and there's protocols against against those. It is, of course, a part of, of the UN, a UN process, and over the last 20, 30-odd years or so, it has been setting out a range of different roadmaps of how do we address the conservation of biological diversity. Back in 2010, the convention developed a strategic plan for biodiversity from 2011 to 2020, which included the IHE targets, which um, people may be familiar with. And that set out sort of 20 globally accepted targets to halt the decline in biodiversity. So that's the premise, the focus of it, to halt the decline in biodiversity. Some of you may well know and have heard that the, 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 the recent analysis has basically shown that none of those targets have been met, which is, you know, a huge, well, not just a disappointment, but you know, a huge setback in terms of trying to do things. So I think what's realised now that actually 
and we've heard this terminology, that now we actually have to take a slightly different approach. These targets haven't worked. We need to up our game on biodiversity, and we need to make these transformative changes. So the, the COP15 in Kunming in China is going to be critically important because it's going to set out the road and the, and the goals and the targets for the next 10 to 50 years. They're looking for out to 2030 and 2050 as well in terms of a longer time period. Very broadly, it's looking at this general agenda is you know, to achieve or halt the decline in biodiversity, ideally chain, trying to achieve a no net loss in biodiversity by 2030. This is, of course, globally. And then starting to restore biodiversity globally going out to 2050. It's something sometimes be called like bending the curve. You've got this downward trajectory of biodiversity globally. We need to bend, level it off and bend it upwards to help us restore. So that's the overall intent. And then lastly, just on the COP itself, what I think is really exciting, I'm missing a lot of at our moment, is other initiatives which are coming on behind the COP itself. And that's growing. Of course, also we've had the Business for Nature initiative, which over 600 companies have signed up for. We've also got the Leaders Pledge for Nature, which is set up by governments, but also now being signed by corporates for more ambitious goals and targets for the COP15. So it'd be really interesting to see who it comes through. And that's going to be hopefully setting some more ambitious targets for governments and the need for collective action. And will those targets be set out in what I've heard referred to as the post-2020 global biodiversity framework. That's the output is it, of this process. And do you have any sense of the types of things that that will aim to include, or is that still to be determined? <laughs> so, still people tell me, so you're absolutely right. Yeah, the post-2020 global biodiversity framework will be the key instrument for delivery of, of the convention and the path basically for the next 10 years or more. And it sets out a, a vision, a mission. It then comprises of a four or five goals, and then 20 targets on how those goals would be actually be met. And it also includes the information about your resource mobilization, national reporting and metrics and things like that as well. So in terms of it's still draft, it's out there as a draft version. It was going to go through a lot of reiterations, I'm sure, before we get to the COP later this year. They haven't yet agreed in terms of the actual targets. But I mean, for example, one of the goals is about an X percentage increase in the area, connectivity and integrity of ecosystems by 2030 or 2050. Again, there's lots of square brackets in the text here because they haven't really decided what percentage or when the actual targets are going to be going on. So that's the really thing to, to watch over the next six months. But as I said, the, the real call from certain governments is, is really to make sure this is actually ambitious, that we really do push the agenda. And the focus of it would be on government policy, but what is the role of the private sector in your view? And that's absolutely right. So Governments, of course, have the accountability and responsibility to deliver on the biodiversity framework. But there is increasing focus and recognition that the private sector plays a really important role in helping to deliver the biodiversity framework. Now, obviously, the global biodiversity framework will be, be agreed by, by parties. That should then manifest itself into national policies and action plans and then potentially down to regulations, depending on the individual countries. But there is increasing recognition that you know, the private sector does play a really important role in being able to deliver those ambitions more so than any before. And part of, of that underpinning the global biodiversity framework is something called the long-term approach to mainstreaming probably called the LTAM and that basically outlines the voluntary guidance basically outlines the roles of governments 
the roles of private sector and the roles of civil society to deliver the biodiversity framework. So it outlines of that sort of frame. But also what we're seeing, increasing number of companies, private sectors getting behind this, making commitments, making pledges, again, pushing for a more smart objectives and a sort of more ambitious targets. And one of those initiatives that I've been following closely is the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure which is, I think, you know, modeled in concept with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. TNFD is at a fairly early stage, but I understand you've been very closely involved in it so far. Can you tell us what the TNFD is and, and what is it trying to accomplish? Yeah, certainly. No, really exciting initiative. And as you already highlighted, uh, conceptually, the TNFD is nature's version of the TCFD. Get my acronyms right in that respect about the disclosure of nature-related risks. So we are on the informal working group of the, the, the TNFD, um, along with 60 or more other financial institutions and corporates. And we're basically developing the scope and the work plan for the TNFD with the idea that the TNFD would be actually be stood up and launched later this year. But the TNFD itself, so there's probably three aspects in relation to the TNFD. First of all, intended to provide a framework for companies and financial institutions to disclose their dependencies and impacts on nature. And that will be very similar to the TCFD, provide a framework with four pillars around governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets. And of course, the details of those, of the frameworks and the sort of the counting process, it was being worked by the IWG at the moment and then the TNFD eventually. So it serves as a mechanism to help companies identify and understand the risks, particularly in relation to the transition to economy aligned with future nature-related international agreements like the post-2020 biodiversity framework. So it is sort of, it's very similar to the, sort of the, the climate journey we've been on with the TCFD. And it's also there to help companies and financial institutions build awareness and transparency about those nature-related risks. But of course, you know, nature is much more complicated than, I dare say, carbon and, and climate because it is quite site-based. So we still have got quite a little bit of work to do in the TNFD to actually just formulate exactly what is going to be the ask on corporates and the financial institutions in terms of that disclosure and the reporting. But it's quite exciting because it's, uh, you know, this is really sort of pushing some of the boundaries. It is very exciting. Did you say that the TNFD is looking to be launched by the end of this year or would it, the work be completed by the end of this year? So, yeah, we're clear on, on the framework. So the uh, informal working group is working at the moment. It will then form the TNFD. The TNFD basically be stood up hopefully this year not sure the exact timing of when that will be so they'll form the tnfd and then over the next two years the tnfd itself will then develop the framework by which companies and financial disclosure will then be requested voluntarily and certainly in the first instance anyway to report against so it's going to be what about 2023 before we actually see the framework being available for corporates and others to to report against so that that's the overall plan has there been any engagement with IFRS that you're aware of, or with their recently discussed uh, Sustainable Standards Board that they're standing up? Seems to me that biodiversity and the TNFD could well be influential in that process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I yes, I has been. I've not been involved in some of those discussions, but I'm aware of it. Um, and uh, lots of other issues going on in this space as well. And and that's part of the TNFD is to make sure that whatever we do aligns with those types of and takes in consideration and aligns with those types of initiatives. But there's a lot, lot of work to do in that space. One thing I, I wanted to ask you about the position that you announced, you also announced a partnership with FFI. What can you tell us about that partnership 
Yeah, certainly. BP's been working with Fauna Flora International for a good number of years. And so what we wanted to do is now to formalize that partnership I mean, um, through a five-year partnership agreement with them. FFI are a great team. They're a great NGO. There's some great people, a lot of experience in this field, biodiversity. And so we've, we've developed this agreement. And the, the overall agreement is for basically for us to work with FFI to help us develop our approach to biodiversity because we recognize you know, we can't do this alone. We need their technical input and support to be able to do that. And initially, the focus with FI was helping us develop the NPR methodology and the metrics. Um, so that's our primary focus. But we're also talking to them about how do we embed nature-based solutions into our activities? How do we address the wider sustainability agenda? So uh, it's a really exciting partnership. Really, really looking forward to the work. Well, we're really excited about working with them. We will be ongoing for and working with them for a good number of good number of years. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Mark. Just as a final thought, what do you see as the key challenges facing biodiversity loss, or I guess the the challenges to try to improve the situation? And what would you like our audience to take away from this discussion about, you know, what areas of action there should be and your thoughts on the future? Great. Well, I th- yeah, I've probably said it a few times. It's, it's really exciting time at the moment for biodiversity. You know, I've never seen such a focus on conserving biodiversity and the importance of nature. So it's fantastic to see. And I think the important thing is to keep that momentum going. Well, I think we're, we're seeing that now, which we weren't seeing before. But you know, the next 10 years are going to be really critical for conserving biodiversity globally. And we have to be sort of turning the, sort of the, the policy, which is being set now, and initially into actual action. And that's where there's the focus actually be, particularly for, for corporates, but for governments as well. In terms of the global challenges, I think it's sort of getting the right balance between sort of the use of land and sea to provide people with the natural resources with conserving areas for biodiversity. Just an example of that sort of trade-off in terms of, you know, we're seeing a huge growth in renewables at the moment, which is fantastic. But of course, those renewables still have an impact on biodiversity as well. As we upscale those, we need to be aware of that. And what are the trade-offs there? What, how sort of um, scale are we going to be able to accept at, at a societal level? So there's going to be those sort of issues we're going to have to deal with. And then more locally, it's about you know, how we value and measure biodiversity, how we value it around society, and how do we incorporate that into our basic decision-making. But you know, I'm a firm believer that you know, we can all make a difference. We all play a part in it. It's not just about governments, it's not just about NGOs or, or private sector. We can all do that, whether it's supporting local conservation groups or, like I said, sort of embedding biodiversity into, into the companies and organisations we work with. So just raising awareness about the importance of biodiversity and driving action to actually make things happen is, is really important. Thank you very much for your time, Mark. It was a very insightful discussion. Great. No, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week.
The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.